On this episode of Mapping Tech and Public Safety, Chris and I are going to talk about the National Institute of Standards and Technology, known as the NIST. Most recently, they had an online webinar titled the Public Safety Communications Research Division. The entire conference was online, similar to most conferences going on these days with the coronavirus. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see or spend much time on the webinars. Chris definitely spent more time than I did. Chris is going to talk about the various sessions that he attended, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the couple of sessions that I attended and get just kind of an overview of this seminar. Chris, uh, tell us a little bit about the public safety communications research Yeah, so it's kind of a neat, it's actually part of the National Institute of Science, no, Standards and Technology. So this is, this podcast will be laden with a lot of acronyms. I'm sure I'm going to mess either the structure, the names, or the acronyms up. So just bear with me. But basically the NIST (laughs) is part of the U.S. Department of Commerce. And it's, uh, there's several offices. This, the, the location that is centered around the public safety communication research, which is actually a group within the NIST in Boulder, Colorado. And their goal- And the name of this online virtual conference is the PSCR. So a lot of acronyms Well, PSCR is, and it's weird, the PSCR 20, I'm gonna add FirstNet here as well. So, and there's actually several FirstNets. (laughs) But at least FirstNet is FirstNet. (laughs) No, FirstNet, there's two FirstNets. Okay, there's FirstNet AT&T, and then there's FirstNet, that's the authority that manages the, the dollars associated with the next, the, this project. I'll but at least that. it's not something like the FTNT. That <laughs> <laughs> could be. I, I don't know. So, so anyway, so bottom line, though, is even though it's a heavily acronym-weighted group and the, the process, it's doing some amazing work as far as uh, facilitating uh, good uses of technology in public safety, then it's law enforcement, fire, search, rescue, emergency management, the whole spectrum. Long story short, like, and this is my simplified history, and I know I'm, if you're going to listen to this podcast, there's probably some things that I'm going to miss and skip over. But basically, with 9-11, it kind of created a lot of, of desire for interoperability with communications. And that was like the, the, the main premise of it. And I know, Steve, you experienced that with your experiences in the FDNY. And so part of the, the process of planning and the future is like, how do we have clear communications with the full spectrum of emergency responders? And so in the late 08, I know it was the, the Obama administration got through a funding for public safety communication to increase interoperability and also at the time to leverage uh, uses of newer technologies such as 5G and also to authorize use of, so when we went from analog TV back in the day where we turned the knob, their parents sent us to turn the knob and then the slider and the cable box and then eventually the push button, we went from analog to digital, which freed up a whole bunch of spectrum, the 700 megahertz spectrum. Yep. Mm-hmm. And what's neat about that, is the federal government created a private public partnership or look to with, in this case, it turned out to be AT&T, for them to bid and purchase that spectrum as long as that public safety had access to exclusive bandwidth for broadband information. So in the 700 megahertz spectrum bumps up to the 800, so it does facilitate the use of 
sending data over wirelessly. And with 5G, like I said, I'm a very simple guy when it comes to that stuff. I, I, I just know it's faster. I, I don't know how faster or what makes it faster other than the, well, I do know a little bit that it increases the, the cell tower density and, and has more because it's a shorter wavelength. There you go. I, I think there's a little bit of science there, right? <laughs> it sounds like it. <laughs> so, science so, and technology. So, yeah. We're mapping tech and public safety, but we're not mapping scientists and <laughs> public safety. <laughs> or, you know, so we're pretty simple folk. Anyway, the things that they set up was a basically a bunch of pilot projects and funding to support the use of creating technologies to support broadband internet because it makes sense really you don't want to have all the spectrum and then nobody's doing anything because nobody knows what to do so they need to do some research and unfortunately public safety is very disjointed in the United States there's no quite cohesive vision plus it's just hard to get a, a clear sense of direction for vendors and companies to actually create a product that might be usable for multiple fire departments they created a a list of portfolio options, if you will, for incentivizing companies based, you know, they incentivize in different ways. They have actually challenges where they call it tech to protect challenge, where you get some small user groups to develop a program or process with responder feedback on any technology that might be useful. I got an interesting story related that I participated in one. It was, it was pretty fun. They also have like challenges, grants, and portfolio prizes for creating different applications of public safety. And some of the categories include like location-based services, user interface and user experience, security, commercialization, voice is a category, analytics, like mapping standards, cover type stuff, and resilient systems. And admittedly, it's so broad and huge. I don't know a lot about it, a lot of it. I'm working on through the, the building three building mapping project called IAXIS, which is a uh, Unfortunately, the academic escapes me, and I'm sure somebody's, I'm sure my NAPSIC folks are going to yell into the podcast. My excuse is I just got off shift this morning, so just give me a break. And <laughs> but basically, it's 3D building mapping, which is in the location-based services portfolio. And then also, I'm taking a keen interest in uh, user interface, user experience. So part of this stakeholder process is that every year they hold basically a mini conference in various locations around the country so that you get some feedback from nearby, relatively nearby users. You know, last year it was in Chicago, the year before that was in San Diego. And I'm not sure what, what it'll be next year. This year was supposed to be in San Diego this year as well. But this year was virtual, just like everything with COVID, we're, we're doing virtual. And so it actually it made, made it more interesting because I actually got to participate in a lot more sessions. And I just want to highlight a couple of sessions because I actually found them very interesting. And oddly enough, some of it was actually kind of misplaced within their category. For example, in the, with my building pre-incident planning background and interest, you know, usually that kind of falls within location-based services, but I found a really interesting presentation about uh, pre-incident planning and some of the challenges in uh, public safety and user interface and experience, which doesn't make sense. And I think one of the challenges is in this portfolio management, there's been a lot of crossover. So I think one of the challenges that this these seven portfolios will have is how do you integrate from one portfolio to the next and so they don't find a commonality. I, I think they recognize that there's always a challenge in crossover. I think this want to incentivize some development and then people who are savvy will probably recognize that there's a lot of crossover. But well, the one, one of the things I found yeah. that not a lot of them, or most of them weren't GIS based. 
uh, webin or presentations, even though they weren't GIS based, I was surrounded by GIS ideas on, on what they were talking about. Oh yeah, absolutely. Basically like the location-based services doesn't necessarily mean GIS. It, it meant just locating where you're at, whether you're tracking or navigating, which inherently in our, our your head, my head means GIS, but to some it quite doesn't. I think that they're recognizing that it is a GIS problem. And some of that portfolio use GIS and, and recognize that things have to be in a geographic coordinate system. The benefit of that is when we speak about crossing over from one portfolio to the next, geography is a world standard. The fact that you're at a particular point or represent a particular geometry on the planet, whether it's measured in lat long, U.S. national grid, or any other geographic coordinate, that's just simple. It's just easy math. Yeah. For example, one of the other portfolios I find interesting is the unit interface and experience, which includes augmented and virtual reality. You could argue maybe that virtual reality doesn't necessarily, I mean, you look at video games with VR, that's just a, that's just fantasy space, but augmented reality, which means that I'm seeing something that's next to me, but I'm, in, I'm still in reality, I think is very, you need to have some geographic tie-in with that so that if you're mapping something in, in that, in, in location, it shows up in the right spot in augmented reality. The thing I was listening to was they had a presentation about drones. Yeah. And everything they were talking about with the drones was getting a drone up in the air, being able to see what the site looks like in regards to the incident, talking about stuff like being able to see various exposures or buildings around the incident site. In my head, that just all computes to GIS. and Yeah, me too. And then even with like the ESRI technology of drone to mapping, the presentation was very good. I liked it. They didn't talk about anything with GIS. But yeah. anyway, those are the things I think about. I agree with you. I think that's fascinating, though, is that the GIS, this is kind of a sidetrack, but GIS is becoming sort of that invisible support technology that's in everything. So even though, you know, my phone's not a GIS tool, it has GIS components and GIS sits, you know, somewhere underneath in terms of location-based services and, and the fact that I could put on a map-based application on it and it just shows up. Even though it doesn't state it in the presentations, it just naturally, they're just going to trip into GIS and not realize it. With a lot of people, there's a lot of academics and researchers that do this, that are doing these projects it's funny because a lot of these projects are very academic. This conference has a lot of, they actually scale the presentation based on beginner, intermediate, advanced. And I, I try to sit through the advanced sections, but it's like I trauma from school. Lots of college, <laughs> calculus five times, the same calculus class five times. I flunked it. I'm not getting this. I was in the civil engineering major. I started off with, I'm not now. <laughs> well, there's a clue on that. I think though that they'll even recognize that with the, the math or the location that they're involved with has a coordinate to it. They've got the, the, the engineering challenges, how they're going to have to get it to match with everything else. I, I have faith that it's just going to naturally fall into place. Like you say, Chris, it's GIS is a component to many things. Mm, yeah. I kind of like the way you put that. And several years ago, when I still worked in New York City, I was in charge of the New York City ARC user group, which was a local-based GIS user community. One of the meetings we had, Jack Dangerman was here in New York City and 
he came and gave a, an hour presentation at our meeting, which was just absolutely phenomenal. But And then I got to spend some time with him one-on-one. I actually brought him up via the number five subway train <laughs> up to the New York Public Library and got him in there to see some of these old maps in their map division. Which is kind of cool because you figure that he flying on his helicopter and then the flight yeah, up right? there and stuff. You know, he, he's a real subway with you. Yeah, no, we, yeah. Well, we were going to take an Uber, but or a cab, but we couldn't. And but the point is, is as we were talking, I, I forget the question I had asked him, but he said that one of his goals was to make GIS or, or geography normal. That's essentially what it's becoming. It's yeah. just becoming a part of everybody's daily tool. Anything from your phone, needing directions to somebody's house or a business or a location, or even the other day, I was up on the North Shore of Long Island with one of my kids and we decided we wanted Starbucks. And I went on the Starbucks app and I wasn't familiar with the area, but the Starbucks app has a map and where the Starbucks are located and you click the button and it, it turns over into my Apple maps and gives me driving directions. Yeah. This is something we talked about early on in the podcast with the younger generations coming up into the fire service and EMS and law enforcement. These are things that are just absolutely normal to them. And mm. they don't know they're using GIS. No, no, nobody does. Exactly. That's perfectly cool by me. Like, I, I don't care what GIS is. And but using these tools that me and Chris and public safety GIS personnel provide are great. And then like I said, when I watch webinar with these presentations, that's where my mind revolves. They talk about drones. I'm thinking GIS. They talk about augmented reality. I'm thinking GIS. There were a couple of GIS presentations, but yeah. for the most part, I would say 98% of them were not. I'm looking at the, the website now, building virtual reality. Same thing, integrating GIS with buildings that you have pre-planned and then using them in a virtual reality environment for training would is, is phenomenal. Oh, oh, absolutely. Well, like I think one of the things, especially the more our job gets more complex and the harder it is to train on real buildings. And the fact also that and one of the things that in the IAXIS project that touches on is that buildings are, are a lot different now. And I know New York's experience because I get, I watch the YouTube feeds where you don't have like, you know, most buildings that used to be built up until the 1980s were performance or prescriptive based buildings. So you just had, this is the shape that your building could be and has to follow a certain shape. And what it made it easy for us is that there was some commonality from building to building. So like spec homes to, to spec office buildings, everything else, they're all kind of the same. And now you're starting to see these buildings that are heavily engineered and very different. And you got to go, man, I don't, I don't understand this building. Having that virtual reality or the augmented reality ability to take your existing building and infrastructure training on it and augmented reality for you get trained in the firehouse in the future. I'm, I'm sure in the future, probably 10 years from now, there's going to be, you're going to be training on buildings, like doing a search of an actual building in your jurisdiction, but it's located a training station for, or a, a training facility further away because you can't get the, the amount of reps required to actually do a good job on it. So right. I think you'll see like the augmented reality, virtual reality stuff to save money because instead of like having a drill at the building that you want to drill at because it's unique, you just 
have a, 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 a mini drill at it, capture the information on it, and then train repeatedly because you have the data and information. So you could train on different scenarios in that building and get used to it. I think it's really interesting. I, I kind of getting back to the presentation, I'll just touch on a couple, but just like this is freely available. So there's no cost to go to these. I think they call it the stakeholder meetings, the official meeting. So it's PSCR 2020. The digital experience is what it was called. And, but if you Google, um, and we'll put it in our blog. If we, if I get my button gear on the blog post, it will put, put the links to the, how to sign up and get information on the blog, but it's all, all past stakeholder meetings are publicly available. And this one's publicly available as well. So if you get a chance to sit down and go through them, it's very great. The one I thought was intriguing and I didn't realize it was actually kind of related to some of the work I've done with iAccess and there was a presentation of the user interface and experience section done by, it's called Prototyping 3D User Interfaces for First Responders. And it was uh, Kate Capallo was the person who presented uh, the information. She works for, uh, I think she works for the NIST, but she's working on her doctorate uh, from Florida. And one of the things that was kind of interesting, I thought was, is that they touched, she touched on her, her skill or focus is in prototyping 3D VR slash AR interfaces. The, the problem that she was trying to solve was pre, you know, the challenges with pre-incident planning, which is the common problem we kind of harp on is like, there's just too much information that's available to consume and it's hard to, to collect. And she did a survey on some of the challenges associated with pre-incident planning and, and how to use them. And you know, the fact of the matter is we're still in the, the PDF paper space for pre-incident planning for the most part of the, in the fire service. A few of us have GIS based systems, but you know, even then there's still a technical lag to get that information readily usable. So as a result, I, I would guarantee most fire departments just kind of look at the building and just know where things are. It's starting to change. There's buildings that I would say are a challenge for some fire companies to get around in if they haven't been there several times. Plus the fact that some of these buildings, you know, particularly here in New York, maybe not on Whibby Island, but they're getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. And some of the buildings, when you're dealing with even a six-story building, if you're trying to put GIS data on it in regards to pre-planning, then that gets a little complicated. Trying to mark out roof access and standpipes inside the building if you're just using that in a 2D scenario, that's where projects like you're working on with like interior space and the, the presentation about indoor mapping, that's where, as Chris and I were talking about, it's not just uh, an icon on a map, it's the data behind it. So now you could be putting the standpipe outlet on the fifth floor and you could put fifth floor in your data identifying the elevator banks and staircases on the fifth floor. You could show all the data that's related to the fifth floor, yeah. even in a 3D environment as well. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think a lot of these presentations can all come together with GIS. There's a couple like, like stuff I'm working on does some of that. First you size up, which is a, a company that they focus on print planning and they're a pretty good, really good company. They have a GIS Based component to it that has some floor querying. I'm really impressed with where they take disparate data sources and aggregate them into one common view. I think that's pretty cool. But yeah, kind of getting back to the interface. One thing was she touched on was is how do you test a lot of this 
information and how well you're collecting it. She, she's talked about tying it in with augmented and virtual reality so that, again, like we talked about before, you're training on it. Yeah. And, and so I think that was really interesting. And then the other presentation I want to touch on, and actually I think a lot of people probably, probably contributed to this because it was a uh, first responder survey on technology and they had 7,000 submissions to the survey, which is pretty cool. I remember my fire chief emailing everybody in the department and said, hey, I want you to submit to the survey and your comments and questions about it, which I kind of laughed because I, I knew about the survey beforehand. It was neat to see from my experience with, with PSCR and then knowing that survey was happening and getting presented about it and then seeing the survey being asked to be used in my own department. So that was kind of interesting. They touched in, like Steve and I talk about quite a bit, the then the challenges of technology and this usable. The one thing that the survey was kind of focused on is how can they make technology use better? What are some of the challenges? Perhaps driven to maybe manage expectations a little, you know, a bit from the public safety side. We have pretty high expectations and expect a lot from our technology because we use good technology on a daily basis. But I think we don't realize sometimes that the daily use technology we use is so good because it's companies like Google and Apple and Microsoft that are supporting it because they're supporting the whole world right. and their technology. Whereas we're a very small niche market. Public safety is very small for technology companies. We have to adapt in, to that environment and recognize. I, th I think my personal soapbox opinion is that you do need that in every department, that super user that supports the management of making good technology decisions. You can't go to the the local Verizon or Apple store and buy something for public safety. You have to have that person who's an expert do it, manage that stuff, just like you have an expert manage your fire engine specifications or your ambulance specifications or your patrol car specs. You need the expert within in-house that does support that implementation. And it could be a techn technical user in the on the line, or it could be somebody that you hire that has experience in both. So those are the, the kind of the two presentations I wanted to highlight. I'd recommend that anybody get a chance to kind of go through and, and, and check out many of the presentations. And that's kind of highlighted the on-demand sessions are highlighted through the uh, seven categories or the seven portfolios. There's going to be more to follow. We'll probably talk in the future more of my IAXIS experience as time goes along. One of the things that was the virtual conferences I've been liking about them is the fact that you could go back and watch these things over and over again. We talked about this during the ESRI virtual conference. When we're actually out there, it's very hard to get around to see everything that you want to see. Yeah. And it's the same thing with ESRI. They have these presentations even now, even though the conference is over, where you could go back and watch them or ones that you missed that you wanted to see, you could watch them. Now the PSCR is doing the same thing. I, I will say it, it's kind of a small little point, but I attend once a year a project management virtual seminar. And it, it's always a virtual seminar. It's not just because of coronavirus. One of the things I always liked about it, though, is when you log into the website, it looks like a mini conference center and it, yeah, it yeah, signs yeah. up and you click on where you want to go. And then within that room, you can pick the different sessions that you want to see. And, and that's the way the PSCR set it up. 
Yeah. And I, I really like that format. I know it seems silly, but <laughs> it does, but it, it's, it's intuitive. You could tell that the Esri conference was very, very polished, but it was very hard to navigate. So, you know, we were complaining about like, Oh, like where's that session at? And then I search it and I thought I bookmarked it. Then my login was wrong. I'm pretty adaptable, but I was like, Holy smokes. I can't. Granted, they did a great job in yeah. the short period that they decided they did, yeah. to cancel the in-person and go virtual. The one little complaint, like you were just saying, Chris, was the navigation. So at the main point, though, is hey, you could go back and watch all these things. That's what yeah. I'm really liking about the virtual experiences. Here's a good idea for the Esri conference. What they need to do is a 3D map of the convention center in San Diego. And that's how you navigate. You navigate that 3D map. Yeah, that would be Go cool. to the conferences. <laughs> yeah. And so you can go back to, because that's, hey, if you're listening, there's the money idea right there. Well, maybe we should delete that part out and keep that to ourselves. <laughs> Somebody's going to be stealing our idea. <laughs> oh, they could totally do it. They could totally do a 3D building map. Put it in the scene and stuff. Hey, you want to go to our conference? You zoom in yeah. and you're going to to like you're in the exit floor or you're going to hall eight, the far far end for the, yeah. the plenary. And the, you're just going in. But hey, you're walking around your 3D map of what I bet you they're going to do it. <laughs> That's such a good idea. How awesome would it be to navigate your product in your conference? Exactly. That would be awesome. Going back to these other conferences, though, and yeah. I'm sure there's going to be more fire conferences and law enforcement conferences, I think it's very important to think about you go to a fire conference or a law conference or emergency management, NG911 conference, yeah. whatever it is, there will be a lot of non-GIS presentations. People should always keep in the back of their mind, whether they're a GIS person or not, how can this fit into GIS? If I don't know how to do it, bring it to Chris Rogers in my department or yeah. uh, Paul Dougherty in my department, any person that's doing GIS in your community, have these ideas and say, I have these thoughts and how this could fit into GIS. And kind of like the guys, the two guys from Houston PD, they were saying they got so many ideas of what to do from once they started putting out products, people were coming back to them and say, oh, can you put this in there? So much of our job, regardless to the public safety agency that you're in, is revolved around geography of some sort. That's the nature of our job. Our, it is, our, yeah. our job is a location and what's going on at that location and what's at that location. You said it best, Chris, when you, you had said firefighters are the, are the best geographers, but that really holds true for any public safety person. <laughs> All this technology yeah. is great, but yeah. so much of it could be integrated with GIS and make that experience better. So. Absolutely. Actually, I'll confess. I think I said, I won't admit this. I hate to admit this, but I think cops are better geographers than firefighters. <laughs> but, but firefighters are a close second. So, well, there's the different. I think I think cops are better in demographics, and firefighters are better in infrastructure. Oh, there I you think go. It's a fair compromise. We can all agree that those two geographic components are what we're we're good at. You get some good analytics out of law enforcement, and good uh, infrastructure management out of fire much of our job is is revolved around that about yeah. geography not just where we're going but what's there what's around it what kind of hazards are there 
that falls into all categories in the fire service. Is there hazardous materials there or is it a tire repair place that could potentially have hazardous materials? I always think of Chief Oliver's thoughts about marking these buildings just for safety reasons before a firefighter pulls in. And one of the things I was just talking about recently with some gentlemen I was talking to about GIS and EMS, I was talking about how law enforcement, they get information about known drug locations or known gang locations. That's obviously very important for them, but that's also very important for fire and, and EMS. Oh, yeah. When I was on the streets, well, even as an officer and I'm riding by myself, it would be nice to know if a house or a building or any sort of structure is a known drug den, because that's going to definitely make me hesitant to go in by myself rather than stay outside and and wait for a police car to get there as well. Same thing for firefighters. That's the beauty about GIS. Granted, there's always the the bureaucracy and political angle of data sharing, but that's very important. You and I talking to Patrick and, and Freddie from Houston PD, like really enlightened me on a lot of things, even though I had thoughts of what they use GIS for in law enforcement. Yeah. They really enlightened me on some of the stuff that they were doing. Data sharing just makes it even that much more important. What you may not think is impo- something important that they're doing in law enforcement for fire and EMS, it it could very well be important to us and vice versa. Maybe that's something we should talk about. We should talk to somebody from NAPSIG. Well, we did talk about a little bit with GIS preparedness uh, on that episode, Mm -hmm. but we should talk to some people in NAPSIG about mutual aid and data sharing. I I think that would be a good topic. I think that's a great idea. So. Oh, cool. I think this kind of wraps up our, yeah, I think Steve and I could wrap up you know, drawing off for hours and stuff, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I think this is kind of a good summary of like what we talked about really the PSDR. If there's any questions or comments, go ahead and reach out to us through our website at mappingtechandpublicsafety.com and we'll get back to you. And thanks for listening to this episode. This is Chris and Steve. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mapping Tech and Public Safety. Please visit our blog at mappingtechandpublicsafety.com.